Wow. It's always a joy to hear what God is doing in the lives and ministries of our global partners and of our young people as well. So always excited to hear um, when uh, folks come back and share uh, because it's a reminder that we serve, a, we serve an enormous God. And he's at work all over the world in so many unimaginable ways and unfathomable ways. So very thankful uh, to be able to be partnered uh, with such a wonderful group of ministry leaders uh, throughout the world. Thank you, Emma, again for sharing today. And we look forward to seeing how God continues to work uh, in your ministry. We have a memory verse for this, the last week of September. Hard to believe that the last, oh, we have one more Sunday. Do we have five Sundays? I can't remember. We do. We have one more Sunday. The second, no, next Sunday's October. All right, everybody take a deep breath. This is the last week then for this particular memory verse. Uh, it's from the Gospel of Mark, which we're studying together uh, right now, and we can say it together. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will turn you into fishers of people, Mark 1:17. Thank you. I want to offer a word of thanks to our tech team in the back. They don't get much uh, credit for what takes place on Sunday morning, but you, many of you uh, noticed a few weeks ago we began having some microphone issues up here on stage, uh, and it was rather disruptive and distracted, and, and they have worked very hard to correct those issues, and I want to thank them for the work that they have done, uh, and uh, good job, guys. Thanks so much for your ministry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They do a great job, and it's so nerve-wracking to be back there at the sound booth when something doesn't go right, because if you ever looked back there at that board, there are literally like hundreds of buttons on it, so when something doesn't go right, uh, one of them said today, you feel like you want to crawl under the table and hide, because <laughs> you know, a lot of the things uh, we think they can control, they actually can't really control. Sometimes it's just technology gets old and goes bad, and and that's happened. It's all part of it. And very thankful for the work that they do uh, in the back for us each and every week. We're moving into the next portion of Mark's gospel today. And we're, as we're studying Mark's gospel, we're holding on to the historical context in which the book was written. And as we suggested last week, Mark is writing to an early church that is facing intense scrutiny and persecution. Jesus as Mark has written at the beginning of the gospel, comes into the world, and very early on in his ministry, we find even our Lord confronted with turmoil and conflict. And guided by the spirits and the words of the Father, he faces this conflict head on. In last week's portion of the gospel, Jesus was quickly, after his baptism, ushered out into the wilderness temptation where he would face both hostile creatures and our adversary, the devil. And as we step into Mark chapter 2 and we continue through the beginning of Mark chapter 3 today, Jesus is going to find himself facing even more challenges. This time, however, the challenges are coming from his own people. Mark writes for the early church, he's writing so that they can see clearly the example of Jesus, a faithful way forward, a way to faithfully and righteously stand under the criticism, persecution, and scrutiny that was coming from both the Roman Empire 
and from within the historic Jewish tradition. You know, in many ways, we share this space with the first readers of the gospel. As we sit here today or we're watching online, we too often feel ourselves living as aliens and sojourners in this world. No longer loyal to the ways of this world, no longer living under the yoke of the law, we in many ways are like the early Christians who were the first recipients of these words. The first readers of this gospel found themselves no longer able to fit appropriately into the culture and politics of Rome, but nor could they follow righteously the religious systems built within the traditions of Judaism. And so they were living under the constant threat of persecution and hostility. And to whom could they turn? And as the writer Mark explores the life of Jesus, his gospel provides clarity for all of us who are seeking to live faithfully in hostile times. Does anybody feel hostility exists in the world today? Polarization, division? Mark's gospel is a wonderful testimony for us of how we can live faithfully even within the circumstances of hostility, scrutiny, criticism. And so that is a question that we unpack as we step into this portion of Mark today. When facing opposition, scrutiny, and hatred, how can we be faithful to persevere and continue in the work of the Lord? In today's text, we're going to find ourselves interacting with five instances where Jesus' ministry, his words, his life, are going to bring him into direct conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And the religious leaders, they are going to try, and we're going to see this over and over and over again, they are going to try to do everything in their power to thwart the ministry and to undermine the leadership of Jesus, his life. His words, his behaviors, his spirituality, his interpretations, even his applications of the law, all coming under attack. And as we move through our text this morning, we'll examine how Jesus responds to his most vocal and persistent critics, leading us towards five takeaways regarding the example of Jesus if you have your Bibles, you want to take them and turn them to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be uh, again this morning by reading verses 1 to 12. And before we read those verses in Mark 2, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its living and powerful nature. We thank you that your spirit is alive and at work through its teaching and preaching, even now, applying to each and every one of us exactly what we need to hear. Today, Lord, as we gather in this building, as we watch online, we are a people living in hostile times. Lord, every one of us in this room has to deal with scrutiny. Every one of us in this room has to deal with criticism and conflict and hostility. And Father, sometimes it's the voice of people that we live with, Sometimes it's the voice of a co-worker. Sometimes it's the voice of a friend, a family member, a classmate. And Lord, for some of us, for some of us, it's the voices in our own heads, the own, our own inner critic that demoralizes and denounces and undermines and scrutinizes our every action. 
And Father, we look at the text this morning and we see an example of the Son that you sent to seek and save the lost, to give hope. We see how he stands, how he continues, how he perseveres, how he endures, how he listens, and how he continues going, even in the face of all of it. And Father, we pray that his example today might be the example that we would want to follow as we endeavor to live faithfully in this world, even in these hostile days. Mold us into the image of your son, Jesus. Make us more and more like him every day. We need your help, Lord. We need the help of your spirit living within us. We cannot do it on our own efforts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to those who had gathered. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Another one of the major themes in the Gospel of Mark is the theme of the crowds. You can follow the crowds in the Gospel of Mark with great intention. Take, take note anytime that you see them because their presence is always with purpose. Many here had gathered to hear Jesus preach. His words, as we see in this text and the text that will follow, they're compelling, they're convicting, they're challenging. Jesus is speaking as one filled with supernatural wisdom and authority. It's an unsettling reality for the religious leaders, the experts in the law. And one of the quickest ways to undermine a person's authority and their words is to attack, scrutinize, and criticize the things that they're saying. And this is exactly where the religious leaders begin their open scrutiny of Jesus' ministry. Verse 5 reveals to us that Jesus sees the faith of the men who had lowered the paralytic through the thatched roof for him to be present with Jesus. They knew in their minds and their hearts that Jesus within himself had the power to heal this man. What they did not yet know is that Jesus also had the authority 
the power and the right to forgive his sins. In fact, as we see in the text, it it appears that no one else in the room seemed to realize that Jesus had this authority. And there in verse 5, Jesus' words to the man, very purposeful, knowing that the religious experts were present, son, your sins are forgiven. Addressing this man as a child, he forgives his sins on the spot. We are not told that this man asked to have his sins forgiven, nor are we told that this man even asked to be healed. And some of the religious leaders that are present have deep, deep concerns with the words that Jesus spoke in that sentence. It was uncomfortable for those who traditionally held the most authority and power regarding spiritual matters to find themselves in the presence of a man who was claiming to have far greater power and authority than they did. They did not like it one bit. Verse 7. Why does this man speak this way? The accusation. He is blaspheming. The question, the concern, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus love throughout these texts we're going to look at today. It reveals how perfectly Jesus knows the hearts and the minds of all people. Just as John tells us, he knows how conflicted they are by what he has just said. He knew that what he was going to say was going to conflict them. Verse 8, Jesus realized in his spirit that they were contemplating such thoughts and said to them, why are you thinking such things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand, take up your stretcher and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, I have said what I said." Jesus responds to the conflict in their own hearts by asking them to investigate their own hearts. What was it that was so disruptive about Jesus' ability to forgive sins? It was far easier for Jesus to perform the physical miracle. Physical miracles have been performed almost since the beginning of humanity. We saw them in the Old Testament from the raised staff that parted the Red Sea to the walls of Jericho falling down to the multiplication of the widow's oil to the cursing or the curing of Naaman's leprosy. But the forgiveness of sins, that miracle, that would cost Jesus his very life. It was the far greater and far more difficult miracle. In this instance, it's it's not the physical miracle that the experts in the law have problems with. In fact, at the end of the scene, it tells us that the experts in the law are amazed by it, even glorifying God. The issue that they have is here is this new teacher claiming to be the Son of God, sent from God, with the power to heal, and now also claiming to have the authority to forgive 
sins. According to Jewish custom, according to Jewish law and tradition, not even the Messiah was to have that authority in their mind. Only God alone could forgive sins. What they didn't know, Jesus is God. Jesus forgives the man's sins. First, a miracle that could not be visibly confirmed. But then he follows it up with a physical healing that could leave no doubt that he had done the first. And from here on out, the religious leaders' scrutiny of Jesus' ministry grows as they feel their own authority, their own power, their own security, their own empires under threat in the presence of the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was sent to free the people from the burden, from the weight of the law and traditions that the religious leaders and experts had constructed and laid heavily upon the people. And so first they go after the words of Jesus, seeking to justify themselves in their denial and rejection of him, and then they move on to his behaviors. Look at the next section of chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd, there they are again, all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Oh, the irony in that statement. If the first way that the religious leaders sought to undermine Jesus was to attack his authority in words, the second way is going to be to attack and go after his behaviors. And once again, this text is hinting at the spreading popularity and influence of Jesus' ministry. It's growing. He's present, and his presence is having an effect and rooting itself in effectiveness among the people. And as so much, Jesus is dining with sinners and tax collectors. And some of the religious leaders are disturbed by this behavior. This time, the religious leaders, they are going to make an attempt to do something that still happens today with Jesus' followers. Anybody ever heard the term poisoning the well? You can nod your heads. Anybody ever heard that term, poisoning the well? 
Poisoning the well is when we go to a person's people, people that we know support another person that maybe we don't like and we have issues with, and we start to drip poison into the well of that person. Well, can you believe that that guy actually did this? I mean, look at him. He's over there dining with tax collectors and sinners. That's not really what we want to be doing, is it? And we begin to create doubt. And we try to sow dissension in our words. We try to create division and turmoil. And this is what is happening right here. The poisoning of the well it still happens today. It was happening back then. They go to his disciples. They try to undermine Jesus' leadership by attempting to have his disciples question whether or not Jesus is being very discerning. Jesus has ears in the back of his head. The text tells us he overhears their question. Uh-oh. Were you ever talking about someone and all of a sudden realized that they could hear? Or, this might be more likely, talking about someone at a local restaurant or some other place only to realize that you were sitting next to an aunt or uncle? You got to watch out in Lancaster County, right? <laughs> You never know. It's better we just not talk about anyone in a way that we wouldn't if they weren't present with us. Right? Right. Yeah. You see, back then, when you shared a meal with people, that meant something. That meant something. That meant you were sharing life. You were willing to share life with those people. And how could Jesus, how could the promised Messiah, the Son of God, how could he really share his life with those people? Where's your discernment, Jesus? These are dishonest sinners. They're robbing our people clean, these tax collectors. They're extorting us and cheating us out of our money. They don't live the way we live. They don't think the way we think. They don't behave or act in accordance with Jewish laws and customs. What are you thinking? And again, his response is filled with irony to the party for whom he is directly speaking. Verse 17, those who are healthy don't need a physician. But those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And ironically, as he spoke those words, he was looking directly at the people who were sick and needed him the most. One author has identified this verse as the keynote of the gospel, saying, quote, the new thing in Christianity is not the doctrine that God saves sinners, no Jew would have denied that. Rather, it is the assertion that God loves and saves them as sinners. 
This is the authentic and glorious doctrine of true Christianity in any age, end quote. That God finds us in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. And he saves us from that place. He doesn't say, Chris, I really love you, but you are messed up. And once you get yourself cleaned up a little bit, then, then, then I'll save you. Take care of yourself. I'll be back. No. No, see, the reality of my salvation was I had no hope. That I, there was nothing I could do at all. That I was completely dead in my trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. That there was no righteousness to be found in me at all. And that Jesus came to me and somehow captured me out of that place, lifted me up, and his righteousness became mine. Not of my own effort, but of his work, of his grace. And that's the message of hope. And oh, how humbling for those who live by their own self-righteousness. It's truly humbling and motivating that Jesus finds us dead in our trespasses and sins, living in darkness without hope, and saves us right there. And the meal that Jesus shares here with these people, it should be stirring our imaginations towards a future banqueting table that's going to be filled with all sorts of sinners who were saved by grace. There are only two places in Mark's gospel where Jesus speaks about his reason for coming into the world. This is the first, and the second is very closely related. It's in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The only two places in Mark's gospel where Jesus talks directly about his purpose for coming. So in both of these first two scenes, the great physician affirms that his ministry would be a far greater and far more significant healing than just that of physical infirmity. Finally, one had come, a healer who could reach down into the depths of our stone-cold hearts, revive them, and bring about our eternal spiritual restoration, reconciliation with God. First his words, then his behaviors, Next, his piety. Is Jesus even really that spiritual? When their criticism of his words and behavior seemed to fall on deaf ears, an assessment of Jesus' lack of spirituality might carry a bit more weight. Look at verses 18 to 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples fast, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The old from the new, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine's destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One of the truths we learn about the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they're identified in many different ways. They're called zealots in the New Testament. They're called Pharisees. They're called Sadducees. They're called scribes. They're, they're called all kinds of uh, uh, different words. But one of the realities we find with them is that they were consumed with the outward appearance of looking spiritual. Their tradition was to fast not once a week, but to fast twice a week. And when fasting, to make it a habit that everyone would see them. Praying on the corners, fasting, looking spiritual. They wanted to appear outwardly spotless. But inwardly, they were rotting. Their concern here regards Jesus' refusal to pattern his life according to their own traditions. Traditions that they believed appeared to make them look spiritual, but really meant nothing in regards to their true spirituality. The example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees remind us that what we see on the outside is not always, always indicative of what is happening in here. And this time their question is asked directly to Jesus. Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but not your disciples? Come on, Jesus. Get with the program. In this place, we fast twice a week. Let's go. Get on it. Come on, Monday, Thursday. Jesus' responses imply that the traditions of Judaism, traditions that were steeped in legalism, had dried out. They were no longer useful for the new ways of God and his kingdom. He answers their questions, and then he gives them three illustrations or parables to further clarify. First, he uses the idea of a bridegroom and wedding guest. Then he talks about an unshrunk patch on an old garment. And then finally, he talks about pouring old wine or new wine into old wineskins. When the bridegroom is present in that custom and today, when we're at the wedding and the bridegroom is present, it's a time to feast. It's a time for joy. It's not a time for fasting. In the conflict immediately before this one, Jesus is feasting. He's reclining at a table, sharing a meal with friends and disciples. There's joy. There's joy in forgiveness. The beginning of Mark chapter 2, Jesus forgives. Joy. The presence of a bridegroom was a time for joy and celebration, and Jesus implies that soon he will be taken from them. This is his first subtle reference in the gospel to his death. And while the Pharisees were concerned with looking spiritual on the outside, those who remained with Jesus, following as his disciples, were the ones that were actually practicing true spirituality. 
And the next two parables recognize that the old cannot be mixed with the new. As one scholar remarked, quote, Jesus cannot be added to a works-based religion. In the case of the Pharisees, they were consumed with their own self-righteousness. Faith in Jesus cannot be combined with self-righteous rituals. End quote. It's not the law, then Jesus. Nor is it Jesus, then the law. It is Jesus Christ alone. And when we are truly found in Christ, we are compelled by his love to fulfill the law, how Jesus himself both demonstrated and commanded by laying down his own life and by calling us to lay down our own lives for one another. The greatest command is love flowing from true repentance and belief. Jesus cannot be placed on top of the law, nor can he be held below or under the law. Jesus is the true and accurate fulfillment of the law. He fills up the law. And this is a reality that's going to continue through the next two conflicts that Jesus faces in the text this morning. It leads right into it because Jesus' understanding and interpretation of the law as understood by the religious leaders would regularly draw him into conflict with those considered the most spiritual of his day. Look at verses 23 to 28. The next conflict regarding the Sabbath. One Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. When I read that this week, it made me think of when I was a little kid, we used to pull dandelions. Did you ever do that? And we used to say, just in a silly way, Mama had a baby and its head popped off. (laughs) We popped the top of the dandelion head off, (laughs) joking around. And I thought plucking heads of grain just reminded me. This is just, the disciples are together with Jesus. They're just walking. And they're plucking heads of grain. And you want to talk about scrutiny? You want to talk about crazy criticism? About trying to draw every minute thing out and turn it against someone? How about plucking heads of grain? 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Look! (laughs) Why were they so disturbed? Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest? And ate the bread of presents, the show bread, which it was not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. 
not man, for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You see, the religious leaders, they'd gone after the authority and words of Jesus. They'd gone after the behaviors of Jesus, the spirituality of Jesus. And now they're going after his interpretation and application of the law, specifically as it pertained to the Sabbath. And this is a clear example where the religious leaders had created their own interpretation, application of the law, and forced this application stemming from their own interpretation upon the people. For nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that you cannot walk through the fields and pluck heads of grain. Nothing in the Torah would explicitly restrict it the way that the religious leaders implied here. Jesus is responding to them with words from 1 Samuel chapter 21. His illustration of David providing the showbread for his men is given as a reminder that God's original inclusion of the Sabbath was actually for the good of humanity. It was given to help us, to help People find rest and restoration from the toils of work and hard labor. And the Pharisees had completely flipped it on its head. Through their strict and rigid interpretations and all of the laws they had made according to it based on their own false interpretations and applications of the law in the Old Testament, they had completely corrupted it. And they had taken what God intended for good for humanity and they had laid it like a weight, like a heavy yoke and burden upon the people. And the people had to live in fear every Sabbath that something that they might do would somehow break God's law, and they would be disciplined. The Sabbath no longer then was something that was for man. The disciples had not broken God's Sabbath law as it was given in the Torah. What they had broken and disrupted was the Pharisees' own rigid interpretations of how that law should be applied. And as the word became flesh, Jesus, he encompassed all of the law and prophets. He knew and applied them perfectly at every intersection of his life, both in spirit and in letter. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and had the disciples broken the letter or the spirit of the law, he would have corrected them. And this conflict continues. The Pharisees and Sadducees don't let this one go. This one's hard for them. Because you see, observance of the Sabbath has a way of making the Sabbath observer look really, really spiritual on the outside. And so to give an inch on this one would really, really affect how they looked in the eyes of the people. So chapter 3, look, it just keeps going. This time, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. They watched Jesus like a hawk. 
Just like they saw the disciples plucking the head of grain, they're trying to set Jesus up here. Now they're watching him. Let's see. What's he going to do? Do you ever feel like mom somehow knew? How does she know? Right? You'd do something and you'd come home and you'd already feel guilty. Like mom knew somehow. Mom's always watching. I tell my kids that. Jesus was always being watched. Always. They wanted to see whether or not he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might what? What's that word right there? Who is the accuser of the brethren? Be careful. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. I love that. He's so, Jesus is always so inviting, no matter who. Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? He's caught them. They're trapped. So they remain silent. They can't answer. You see the impossibility of the situation Jesus has put them in? Jesus looks around at them with anger, both, and grief. Both of those things are present. That's okay in the presence of sin. Sin should anger us and should grieve us. It should do both. The hardness of a person's heart should both anger and grieve us. We can be angry and not sin. Jesus is angered and he's grieved at the hardness of heart. And he said to them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately, there's that word, that's another theme word in the Gospel of Mark, immediately, you can underline that when it comes up over and over and over again. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Mm. They're not watching Jesus because they love him and they want to shape and form their lives after him, are they? That's not why they're watching Jesus. They're watching Jesus because they want to, like the lion seeking whom he may devour, pounce on all the ways that Jesus is misapplying and misinterpreting the faith according to them. The religious leaders are now standing in the place of Satan. Plotting to catch Jesus, breaking the Sabbath, Here's a man with a withered hand. What ammunition can Jesus give us that could cause us to fire at him once again? And as was the habit of Jesus, he takes their misguided intentions and he turns them into a question that reveals the true motive 
behind what they're trying to do. And laying exposed before the Son of Man their own self-righteousness is now on full display. They can't hide anymore. Jesus has asked them a question that totally reveals to them their own pride, their own hateful motivations, their own arrogance. And again, we are reminded by Jesus' behavior here that people were not created by God to meet requirements of the Sabbath. God initiated and commanded the Sabbath in order to sustain and supply for his people. We are not the lords of the Sabbath. Paul takes this teaching of Jesus and he continues to draw upon it when he writes to the early Christians who were gathered in the city of Colossae. And I have this on your note guide this week as a scripture to study on your own. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, but there's more in context that you'd want to read. It's all really good. Verses 16 and 17 of Colossians 2 says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in matters of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of things to come, but the reality is Christ. That's the reality. For the Christian alive both then and today, in Christ we find the Sabbath rest that God intended for his people. Jesus is our Sabbath. We are to practice the Sabbath every single moment of every single day as we continually find our rest in Christ who's restored and reconciled us unto God. The religious leaders remain silent here because they know that Jesus is right, but their pride and their arrogance will not allow them to submit to his ways and acknowledge his righteous fulfillment of the law above their own self-righteous applications. Their pride both angers and grieves the heart of Jesus as he takes inventory of their hearts. He does the right thing, the good thing, the proper thing on the Sabbath. And he heals the man with the withered hand. At every intersection of Jesus' life and ministry, he's met with conflict, turmoil, and scrutiny. Friends, here we are in this world. And somebody just remarked to me the other day that sometimes they feel like they're out of place here. And I said, good, I do too. We all should. We all should. All of us who are in Christ should feel conflicted, should feel the weight of hostility here in this world because this isn't how it's supposed to be. And we are living differently, counter to the culture and the ways of the world. And it will bring us up against conflict and ridicule and there's much to learn from the example of Jesus. First, Jesus does not allow scrutiny, ridicule, opposition, or criticism to deter him from his calling. He heals the paralytic. He forgives sin. He dines with those he was sent to seek and save. He defends his disciples when they're plucking heads of grain. He heals on the Sabbath. 
He fulfills the law in all things. He's leading by love. Never detracting from his calling. Always continuing. And that is hard. It's hard when we face criticism and opposition. But then perhaps the most challenging thing for me in the example of Jesus this week, the thing that really pulled at my heart and made me begin to question my own life, my own motivations, my own habits, my own attitudes, my own thoughts, is that Jesus honors and dignifies his opponents by seeing them and listening to their concerns. He doesn't agree, clearly. But he gives them the space to be present there. He listens. He doesn't just say, go away, leave me alone. Get out of here. You're always nitpicking at everything. Knock it off. Let me be. He's not antagonistic, dismissive, rejective. Interestingly, he does not become like them in his response to them. He shows them a far better way. He looks beyond the words and the actions of his opponents and critics to the conditions of their hearts. That's love. What's going on in here? That makes you feel so disrupted by every little decision that's made outside of your control. What's happening in here? Because this is what matters to Jesus. His questions reveal true motivations. They reveal true intentions, but they also don't allow the critics in his life to hide. He draws them out with his questions. He's so wise. And his wisdom comes from love, a place of love. Jesus seizes an opportunity in opposition to clarify his purpose and his mission. He takes the opportunity to share again why he's been sent and what he's doing. And whether they agree with him or not, that was the truth. John 12 tells us Jesus only spoke the words his father gave him. That's it. And Jesus demonstrates his love for his opponents by dying on the cross. And when he's on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, we live in a world that tells us there's enemies all around us and we have to fight, 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 fight. Oh, to fight like Jesus. Surrender. 
lay down our lives. To let the critics speak and to truly listen and to make sure that they're heard and that they're seen and to help them know that they're loved even when they oppose and reject. What a message for those in the early church who faced the intense scrutiny and persecution from both the leaders of Rome and the leaders of Judaism. What a message for those in the church today who face intense scrutiny and criticism from other Christians and from those who are not Christians in our own culture. Jesus' ministry was filled with intense persecution, ridicule, and opposition. He remained faithful, persevering in the work that God had given him to do. Motivated by love, empowered by the Spirit, guided by the words of his Father, he lived as the good shepherd, laying down his life for the sheep, even the sheep who were sometimes unruly. I'm one of them. Might his example compel us to do the same. Team, will you come as we close in prayer? Father, thank you for your word today. We are always thankful for the example of Jesus. We're thankful for his words. Lord, we're thankful for the truth that he communicated to those who opposed him, the love that he demonstrated to those who stood against him, and the endurance and perseverance that he modeled for us, even in the face of intense scrutiny and opposition. Lord, we would ask that you would give us endurance, give us motivation, give us the strength to continue when we feel the weight of words and eyes criticizing, scrutinizing, challenging, Help us to show love and a better way. To be a people who are always ready to share about the hope that we have, the hope of Jesus, your son, who gives us an eternal future and who has conquered and called us victors together with him. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.